Hey everyone, and welcome back to the CBIS show. I'm your host, Colin Bish, and welcome to episode eight of the show. Uh, I'm very excited for this one because this is probably one of my most favorite scripts I've ever written. I got a whole, whole lot to talk about from championships to trades to the draft to rankings at the end of it. But, you know, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that for when we get there. But forewarning, uh, this is probably going to be a very long episode. So just as a for, get just as a forewarning, get comfortable, get something to eat, something to drink, because probably going to be here for a while with how much information I got on this script. But I hope that you guys do enjoy it because it's one of my favorite scripts I've ever written. Probably my favorite script I've ever wrote. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this too. So without further ado, starting off with... The NBA championship as the Denver Nuggets won their first ever NBA title winning over winning the game five with a 94-89 victory over the Miami Heat. The Heat had kept the game competitive through three quarters trying to extend the series. Jimmy Butler did struggle but he was picked up well by Bam Adebayo who had a great first half and a great first quarter in that game five. Butler started to hit shots in the fourth as Denver was attempting to close it out. He hit one three, another three, drew a foul and another three and hit hit all three free throws. However, Jamal Murray would come down, uh, miss a mid-range, I believe it was. But he, as he missed it, Bruce Brown came back, put back, uh, hit, hit a put-back layup that that was eventually the deciding score of that game that put the Nuggets up 90-89. to uh, Catavius Coldwell Pope and Brown would each have two free throws later on. They would hit all four of them, two and two respectively, and the Nuggets would win the NBA championship by a score of 94 to 89. Congrats in part to the Denver Nuggets. It was an incredible run from an incredible team, particularly you know Nikola Jokic, the star, um, you know Finals MVP, one of the greatest playoff runs we've ever seen, and that's not hyperbole. It truly was when you lead, you know. All and when you lead all players in points, rebounds, and assists, and I believe he led in points per game, rebounds per game, and assists per game. I could be wrong about that. But when you lead in categories like that, and you were also um, as such a solid defender as he was, you know, it, it truly is probably one of the top five greatest playoff runs of all time. Uh, and it, it just wasn't him, you know. Yeah, Jamal Murray, who was a big factor in that Western Conference Finals. He did struggle a little in the NBA Finals, but he was still a big factor. It was Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon was a big, big factor in the NBA Finals with his paint presence, was able to get, was able to box out, get a lot of rebounds, and he, have, he even had a good game four, led the team in points in that game. Um, then you have Catavius Caldwell-Pope, who hit, you know, he's the three-point shooters, and he made hit a bunch of good big shots. Michael Porter Jr. did have a poor NBA Finals, but still was a big part of that team. And then you had, you know, off the bench was thin for that team, but, you know, you had you know, Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, Christian Brown all had solid performances, especially Bruce Brown, and he recently, um, he recently opted out of his contract, and he's going to become an unrestricted free agent. Denver will, sure, will surely want to bring him back, and, and then you have um, then you have the coach Michael Malone, who's definitely established himself as one of the best coaches in the NBA. You know the way he was able to coach circles around most teams, you know Minnesota and Phoenix, and especially Los Angeles. His coaching job against Los Angeles and even Miami were incredible feats. And he's and this is the thing. It's like Michael Malone, I believe, is the sec, third longest tenured head coach in the NBA right now. 
Uh, and he's only been there since like 2015. And that, you know, that speaks to a problem with like, you know, consistency with head coaches. But regardless, you know, it was an incredible run by the Denver Nuggets as a whole. You know, people are going to point back to Nikola Jokic. But that whole team was incredible, you know, specifically like Jamal Murray in the Western Conference Finals. And Michael Malone was an incredible coach throughout the entire playoff run. It was an incredible playoff run. Congrats in part to the Denver Nuggets. And as for the Miami Heat, you know, it's not the way that the season, you know, they wanted to end the season. But regardless, the Miami Heat had an incredible playoff run. Nobody thought they were going to get this far. People thought they were going to get bounced in the first round by the Milwaukee Bucks. However, they bounced the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round. Went on to defeat the New York Knicks. Nearly blew a 3-0 lead to the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals, but won a Game 7 decisively. And... You know, they came up short in the NBA Finals, but regardless, it was a valiant effort from a team. Nobody expected to get this far. Jimmy Butler was absolutely incredible all game, all series long. Not Well, not even series, just playoffs in general. I'll never forget the 56-point performance against Milwaukee in Game 4. Bam Adebayo, you know, he came up big in multiple games. And the I think the biggest contributor of this... Um, of this entire run, you know, not just Jimmy Butler, but Eric Spolstra, truly, probably, truly one of the greatest coaches of all time. If you think of like player usage, because the way he's able to take players that seem to come out of nowhere and turn them into NBA level, NBA level uh, talent is incredible. You know, all the guys that they had this year, Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, all those guys came up big in multiple spots um, throughout their playoff run, you know, not the way that the Miami Heat wanted to end it, but regardless, it was an incredible run from a team nobody saw uh, coming this coming this hard. But <laughs> but um, it was a fantastic run. Not the way again, not the way it, uh, they probably wanted to end it. Definitely did not want it to end that way. But regardless, it was a fantastic run. It was incredible to watch them. It was a really fun NBA season and a very very fun NBA playoffs. Uh, but I do want to say this about this narrative about like this narrative about the Denver Nuggets and who they played um, in the playoffs was alive for about like a few days because people try to make this narrative and it shut down immediately. So people try to point out, you know, who the Denver Nuggets played in the playoffs. So you got eight seed Minnesota. They're always they're a number one seed. They're always going to play an eight seed. They can't help that. So what can you do? They played the 4C Phoenix, which was the highest seed that they played. Y'all were saying that Phoenix was going to win the NBA championship because of the talent they had. Denver beat them. They, Phoenix didn't get a single game on the road. And in game six, Denver blew them out to close out the series. Then the Lakers. Oh, the Lakers are the seventh seed. Then they swept them. They are supposed to swept them. I don't forget y'all were saying that the Lakers were going to go to the NBA Finals. Most people were picking LA to win. They're like, oh, nobody can beat this this level of Lakers. When they're all playing like this, nobody can stop them. Yeah, whatever. Like, y'all say that, and then once the Lakers get swept, you guys try to make this narrative like, oh, the Nuggets were playing a 7th seed. Shut up. Just, just, just no. I'm not saying y'all listening are saying this, but, like, like regardless, just No. They don't make that narrative. And then you had the Miami Heat. Oh, the, you know, they played, excuse me, they played uh, an eighth seed in the NBA Finals. Of course they were going to win. 
let's just ignore that this is probably one of the greatest eight. This is probably the greatest eight seed of all time in NBA history, who you know beat the number one and number two overall teams in the NBA in terms of record, the Bucks and the Celtics in five games and then in seven games. Let's not forget that the you know the Heat nearly swept them, and then. The New York Knicks, you know, they that team was also very good, and Miami took care of them in like what six games. Excuse me, but but everyone's making the excuses now, like oh they played an eight seed, they played a seven seed, and another eight seed. Like you know, it's a weak playoff run. So the first eight seed, as I said, they can't help it. They can't help who they play. They like they they they're the number one seed. It's set in stone. They're gonna play an eight seed. So what? You know. And then the, you go. They go on to play the number four seed in the Phoenix Suns. That Phoenix Suns team, everybody was saying was gonna win the NBA Finals because KD and Booker and Aiton and CP3 and then Nikola Jokic dusted uh, DeAndre Aiton, and that was the end of that. And then when we get to this, is the worst one: the Western Conference Finals. Most people were predicting the Lakers to win that because y'all were saying, oh, when the Lakers play like this, you know, when everybody's clicking, LeBron, AD, Austin Reeves, and D'Angelo Russell, and all those guys, like, y'all were saying, whenever this team plays like this, no one can beat them. And the Nuggets swept them. And then now, these same people that said this are backtracking, and they're like, oh, well, the Lakers were at 7th seed. They never had a chance. Like, no. Shut up. That's a dumb narrative. And then the Miami Heat, the, the, people say, like, oh, they beat an eight seed in the NBA Finals. Mind you, the greatest eight seed of all time in NBA history. But here's the thing. This is, this is just what's really annoying. That not only do we have to, like, ki- like, tear down anybody's accomplishments, like the Denver Nuggets, but now, like, like Pete, like we don't understand context, right? When we look at the Lakers and the Heat, like and how they performed in the playoffs versus the regular season, we can understand like wow, these teams were not were nothing like their record or their seed suggested. They were much better. And that happens all the time in the playoffs in any playoff scenario. At football, baseball, uh, hockey, basketball, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the playoffs. Any team that goes in there, right? Any team that goes in there, like you know, regardless of record or fi- record or seed, can shock the world. And we never like, you know, wild card teams have won the Super Bowl before, and nobody projected that. Like, like the Pittsburgh Steelers winning Super Bowl. 40, I believe. I, I don't know if it was 40. But the Pittsburgh Steelers defeating the number one seed Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl. No one saw that. The New York Giants defeating the 18-0 New England Patriots. No one saw that. Like, this is what happens when the playoffs roll around. Teams, like, there are certain teams and players that elevate to a new level. And, like, coaches, too. They do it as well. This is the same thing with the Lakers and the Heat. The coach, like Darvin Ham, and that Lakers team elevated to a new level. Excuse me, after you know they, you know after um you know the playoffs started with the Miami Heat, same thing. That whole team and the coach Eric Spolstra, they elevated to a new level in the playoffs. And but but the narrative is always going to be, oh well, you know they're an eight seed or a seven seed because it says it on Wikipedia. Like whatever. 
like I just don't I understand like why people are always trying to tear down anything you know anybody's success story or anything positive because you know this negativity in general is addicting I get it like it's but it's like when the narrative is this dumb considering you know what we saw take place in the NBA playoffs particularly with the Lakers having beaten the number two seed Grizzlies and then the defending champion Golden State Warriors to get to the conference finals and then the Miami Heat again beating two of the two best teams by record in the NBA and beating them to advance the NBA finals along with a resurgent New York Knicks team like everybody just ignores that they just key in on seven and eight and it's like oh well the Nuggets beat lower-seeded teams. Of course they were going to win the NBA Finals. Just no. Like, shout out. Just just stop. None of that. So moving on to hockey, not only do we have one new uh, champion in sports, we had another in the Vegas Golden Knights as they absolutely thrashed the Florida Panthers 9-3, and they won their first Stanley Cup in, in, in NHL history. Vegas came out with a big lead in the first. They went up 2-0 via Mark Stone and Nicholas Hague. Hagee, I think it's Hagee. Florida cut the cut the lead with Aaron Ekblad to make it 2-1, but the Knights responded with four straight goals from Alec Martinez, Riley Smith, Mark Stone again, and Michael Amadio. Ivan Barbashev added another goal to make it 7-1, and while Florida would score two more to make it 7-3 via Sam Reinhart and Sam Bennett, Vegas added two more when Stone completed the hat trick and Nicholas Roy made it 9-3, officially sealing the, the Vegas Golden Knights' first Stanley Cup. Jonathan Marcheseau uh, won the con Smythe, and while he was big, like in this series for sure, he he was he was a monster. Like I think he had five or four goals through th- the first three games. It was incredible. The real guy I want to focus on is Aiden Hill. Hill was an, like he was an entire force in the whole postseason. He had a 92. He had a, in the in the Stanley Cup final. He had a 92.3% save percentage, along with incredible saves such as the incredible stick save against Nick Cousins in Game One and the big stop he made on Matthew Kachuk's potential game tying goal in Game Four. You know, Jonathan Marchessault was insane in this playoffs, no, no doubt about it. But when we look at value, like the guys who are valuable, like it's hard to say that, you know, if Aiden Hill isn't there for the Vegas Golden Knights, that the Vegas Golden Knights don't win the Stanley Cup because he was an absolute stud all game long. Or not just all game long, but all series long. So congrats in part to the Vegas Golden Knights. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, maybe in St. Bonaventure listen to this or the Buffalo area or just Buffalo fans in general that don't like me saying that because Jack Geichel, you know, I'm indifferent to it, so I don't really care. But it does kind of suck. It's kind of weird, you know, with Bruce Cassidy. I'm a Bruins fan, so I know about Bruce Cassidy. But, you know, it kind of sucks to see him win a Stanley Cup. But I'm also, you know, happy for him because, you know, he did give us some really good years in Boston. So, you know, congrats to Bruce Cassidy. Congrats to the entire Vegas Golden Knights team. And as for the Florida Panthers, it's like I'm indifferent to them. Like, you know, they knocked us out in the first round, which was impressive as hell. Then they went on to thrash the Toronto Maple Leafs and then sweep the Carolina Hurricanes to make it this far. You know, they were incredible, no doubt about it. But I'm going to be honest, they were also incredibly dirty, which which did help them in the playoffs. But then it also backfired in the, um, in the Stanley Cup because they were getting penalty after penalty after penalty. And it just, it really killed them. 
because Vegas Vegas is, was one of the best uh, teams that capitalized on um, you know power plays in the playoffs, and you know you give that team that many opportunities, they're gonna cash in a ton of them. So, but you know, so Florida Panthers, you know, probably not the definitely not the way that they wanted to end. But you know, congrats to them on an incredible season. And same thing with the Miami Heat; nobody saw them making it this far. Nobody. Um, like Matthew Kachuk, you know, I definitely questioned, uh, like, you know, him slapping the, him slapping the legs of players with his stick at the end of game four in that big brawl. Um, you know, he's a bit of a questionable player, but regardless, that dude is an absolute star, you know, big goal after big goal after big goal. He had the two game, he had the two game winning goals, I believe in Carolina and then the game winning goal to send the uh, Panthers to the Stanley cup. Uh, in game four and then in game three he had the goal that tied uh, the game and gave the, gave the Panthers their only win of the series as you know they lost 4-1 but regardless you know regardless of you know my feelings about the Florida Panthers you know I feel like they're a little they're, they're, they're kind of dirty but regardless you know they had an incredible season nobody saw them going this far um, congrats to them um, not the way that the, they wanted it to end but nonetheless it was an incredible run you know Probably one of the most impressive runs I've ever seen in hockey. And, you know, I mean, I'm not too big into hockey, but it was still an incredible run nonetheless. Excuse me. Moving back to basketball, uh, Michael Jordan officially sold the Charlotte Hornets. Um, Jordan's tenure as majority owner came to an official end as he sold his majority stake to a group led by Rick Schnall and Gabe Plotkin. Jordan, will, Jordan oversaw the NBA draft and free agency. Uh, but he's going to move down to a minority stake once the sale is complete. He completed that NBA draft by drafting Brandon Miller, which people were not happy about. Um, and I'll and I'll explain why when I get to the NBA draft. But you know, it, it, like if you want to look for a good example of a business owner, then you got to look at how Michael like yes, Michael Jordan did not have the greatest tenure as owner of the Charlotte basketball team. You know, there were the Bobcats and the Hornets, but you know, he originally paid 275 million for a majority stake in 2010 and he sold them in 2023 for 3 billion dollars. You know, if you're a business geek, like that's that's impressive. Um in his tenure, it, like again, I said it was riddled by a slew of underperforming and sometimes awful seasons. Like, I think it was like 2012 or something when they had when they only won like seven games in a lockout season. It, it, like they they definitely had some really bad seasons. You know, they missed on a lot of draft picks. But you know, we'll see what the future holds for the Charlotte Hornets under this new um, under this new regime. Um, sticking with basketball, though, this is the big headline that really struck the because <laughs> um, because um, you know it, a lot of people were kind of anticipating this fall in the NBA Finals because Adam Silver had said he wanted to announce like the punishment for John Moran. If you guys remember John Moran, that new gun video, all that stuff, he wanted to announce the punishment after the NBA Finals and not announce it during the finals to take away from you know the spectacle or whatever i get it but it's also kind of like it see it's also kind of funny because you just have like adam silver sit, sit, sitting there like thanos in infinity war like getting ready to lay the hammer down i it, it was it was kind of funny it also was kind it also did kind of suck for john moran because you have him just kind of sitting there like you know what's gonna happen but 
It officially was announced Grizzlies' John Morant was suspended 25 games to start the 2023-24 season. So, Morant, he's only suspended 25 games as while his conduct was deemed detrimental to the league's image in their eyes because they have a whole, you know, booklet of stuff like that goes through detrimental conduct that's like, oh, you can't do this, you can do this, like, but the issue never reached legal levels, like, you know, such as the Miles Bridges situation, for those who don't know, uh, Miles Bridges, Charlotte Hornets forward was suspended for 30 games after pleading no contest to a felony domestic violence charge. That's a legal thing, so it's like they could take more action on that. But when it comes to, you know, something that was just a stupid mistake and, you know, it happened, it's another a super, a stupid mistake that happened again, and it, it never reached a legal level. You know, it's like, well, you did it once before, Jaw. You know, it's it, you didn't break a law, but, like, we, you know, you got to, like, follow our conduct, you know. Since the term, you know, quote, detrimental conduct, unquote, it's so broad with the NBA, the league can look at a player's actions and determine the pending consequences. As I just explained, like, you know, they look at the situation like, well, Ja, you know, you already did this once. You didn't break a law, you know, but it just looks bad for our image. So we're going to have to go to a more lengthy suspension. It is reported that Morant will, quote, formulate and fulfill a program with the league that directly addresses circumstances that led him to repeat this destructive behavior. And, quote, I believe that came straight from Adam Silver. It basically just means that this is going to be some type of counseling mandated more by the NBA because if you guys remember in the first suspension he was going to counseling in Florida which I believe was private and then you know like coming out and I, this happened again so it obviously didn't work but you know I th but now it's going to be you know more overseen by the NBA so that they can ensure like this doesn't happen again because if it happens a third time oh lord what really sucks in this whole situation is the financial implications for John Morant. You know, in his first suspension, Ja lost an estimated $669,000. And this pending suspension could cost him upwards of $8 million. He also lost a chance at getting a Supermax by failing to make an all-NBA team due to his suspension. And with how he was playing this NBA season, he would if, if, the, if the gun incidents never happened, he would have surely made an all-NBA team. But, you know, he made those poor decisions, and it cost him a lot of money. Not only that, like, he lost the Powerade endorsement. Um, the Nike, I don't believe the Nike endorsement's going on. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of flack about that. Like, oh, why does John not get his take it away? But Kyrie says, I'm not going to get into that, because that is a deep rabbit hole that I do not want to go down. But I just wanted to lay that all out for you guys, so you guys kind of understand what's going on. Like, why the NBA suspended John this long? why um you know what's gonna happen to him what this means for him and to be honest with you like it, it it's like you know this feels like a i don't know why but this has like a final straw feel to it like if he does something that messy because he's done stuff that's messed up over and over again like the two gun incidents there was an incident where he and where he was like you know playing a pickup game in his backyard and he and his friend like beat up this 17 year old kid he went inside you know came out with a gun in his waistband it's like whoa and then you have another incident that talks about like his you know uh his mother being upset with a worker at a mall so she calls uh jaw tells him to go there and like pressure him and jaw brings like nine other people and they start pressuring him kid has to you know the worker has to lock himself in the door i don't know how true those two 
um, incidents are. I believe the first one is true, like has some truth to it because like the 17 year olds like trying to make a case against him, something like that. The second one, I'm not so sure, but you know, this is like a whole line of stuff that it's like, you know, it shows like how immature like John Morant is. Like he, if he just gets this stuff under control and he stops this, like he could easily be like, he's already a star in the NBA and you know, he's super influential to a lot of kids, not just in the Memphis area, but like all over uh, the country in terms of like basketball. And, you know, how would you feel if you had like your quote unquote role model and he's out there flashing a gun? It's like, you know, it, it, it sucks. I hope that Jock can control himself and, um, you know, come back next season after the suspension and ball out and just focus on hoops and that's it. But like, you know, it's just, you know, that's just a lot of hope. I actually want to see it, you know. And moving on, I believe, no, this is the second to last thing I got about uh, basketball. Yep. So, basically, guys, uh, hold on. I got to fix this. So, there was a bunch of big trades that happened. Uh, a bunch of big trades that happened. Uh, over the past few weeks, I, I believe, well, not few weeks, but last couple weeks. First off, the Bradley Beal trade. Bradley Beal, former All-Star guard, headed to the Phoenix Suns while the Wizards received Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, multiple second-round picks, and a pick swap. The actual trade w will take time to complete, although it has been completed. Beal is officially a Phoenix Sun. Uh, the, uh, Phoenix Suns also got uh, Jordan Goodwin and Isaiah Todd in that deal. There's a large possibility that another team is involved to take CP3, likely a contender. I'll get to CP3 in a second. Uh, if there's not a third team, like uh, if there's a, if there's not a third team, Paul and Washington will likely undergo discussions for buying out his contract and allowing him to become a free agent, which didn't happen. Again, I'll get to it. But um, adding Beals, this is this is strange because adding Beal to a roster that includes Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Aiden gives the Suns four max contracts leaving their money situation incredibly limited so yes the star power is it there 100 percent and people are like you know you got two shooting guards well devin booker can play shoot point guard don't even worry about that bradley beal is going to be a shooting guard and kevin durant will probably either be the three or the four and you got deandre in the five and then you likely got josh akoe in the at the three but that, but what's going to become of the depth again their depth right now includes akoge terrence ross Jacques Landale, Torrey Craig, and Campaign. And I just don't think that type of depth, depth is consistent enough for them to be able to compete for a championship. Because if anything, you know, if anything shows us, like, you need to have at least some depth in the NBA to compete for a championship. Look at the Miami Heat. Look at the Boston Celtics last year. You know, even the Golden State Warriors last year, they had incredible depth with Jordan Poole, um, Excuse me, like that, like you always need depth, you know, like at least solid depth players and bench players to take you to a championship. And the Phoenix Suns are sucked dry out of a lot of them. They gave away a lot of their bench players in that Kevin Durant deal. And then they basically gave away two more, well, one more, Landry Shaman, to the Washington Wizards. Now it's just like, you know, what are we going to, like, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, the, like, it, 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 I don't, I like, is the trade for Beal a good trade? Like, yeah, it's definitely going to improve their chances at a championship because you got three all, like, le all level scorers like that. 
you know, you're always going to be in the mix for a championship talk. But the depth is just like, how are you going to, you know, how, how are you going to work that out? Are you going to buy a bunch of players on, you know, small deals? You got four, excuse me, you got four max contracts in Booker, Aiton, as I said, Booker, Aiton, KD, and Beal, like on that, on your payroll. How are you going to be able to get at least, you know, you know minimum level players in, you know, minimum level death players into your team with that money situation does it i think the trade for uh though i think the trade for the wizards you know i think it was good because you know you get a bunch of picks you get a pick swap you get a solid backup guard in landry shaman you get chris paul who you can move for somebody else and more pieces i'll get to that again uh, but this is ba- but this whole offseason has basically been the washington wizards trying to remodel their um I've been trying to remodel their uh, their roster through Michael Winger, their new uh, president of basketball operations. He's been given the ability to basically re you know reroute their roster in whichever way he pleases, and basically just go into rebuild mode. And that's what go, and that is there's a fly, and that is what happened with the next deal I'm going to talk about, the Kristaps Porzingis trade. The Celtics received star forward Kristaps Porzingis from the Wizards along with the Grizzlies' first round pick, which I believe that was used on uh, Marcus Sasser. And he's a t- and a top four protected first round pick from the Warriors. The Grizzlies are acquiring former Defensive Player of the Year Marcus Smart. And the Wizards are acquiring Tyus Jones, forward Danilo Gallinari, and center Mike Muscala and the 35th pick of the 2023 NBA Draft. I don't remember who that is. I apologize. First for the Celtics, they are getting a massive get here in Porzingis. He had his best season of his NBA career by averaging 23.2 points per game, 8.2 rebounds per game, 1.5 blocks per game on 50% shooting and 39% shooting from three. He struggled with scoring in the paint throughout most of his career, but he this year he was incredibly efficient and looked a lot better in close range this past season compared to his career. I believe he hit like 50% of uh, two-point shots. He like one of the things that he really struggled in is he just looked weak in the paint throughout most of his career. But in this past, but you know this past season he looked a lot more physical in the paint. Which you know if they are getting that version of Chris Porzingis, this could be a really dangerous you know deal for the East. It could be really good for the Boston Celtics. Losing Marcus Smart was a big hit. He's been the vocal leader for Boston these past nine years. I believe he was the longest tenured player on the team. Uh, again, key defensive presence, pure playmaker, um, former defensive player of the year. He's been everything for the Boston Celtics. He's going to go to Memphis and will start in place of John Morant throughout his suspension. I think it's a very good move as Marcus is the type of player that screams, you know, Memphis Grizzly. And he's going to, perf- I believe he will perform well as a defensive anchor and playmaking point guard. He Last year, he averaged career high 6.3 assists per game. And when John Morant comes back, you have John Morant. Marcus Smart, Desmond Bain, Jerry Jackson Jr., and Steven Adams. That could be a pretty dangerous lineup in the West next year. And as for Washington, again, they're continuing to they continuing to retool their roster. They they saw picked up a solid starting point guard in Tyus Jones, who has experience running an offense as a starter. You know, when Ja wasn't there for most of the suspensions or injuries, Tyus Jones was there, and Tyus Jones was really good as a starting point guard. You know, he's a much better playmaker than Ja Morant. And by playmaker, I mean finding the right guy like passing like you're talking about making up like a highlight play like yeah it's John Morant but 
We're talking about a guy making the right play. That's Tyus Jones. So I think it was a good deal for the Washington Wizards um, giving away another big contract, trying to retool their roster. And once again, final trade for the Washington Wizards, Chris Paul deal. After being acquired as a part of the Bradley Beal trade, Paul is being flipped to Golden State in exchange for Jordan Poole, a 2031st round pick and 2027 second round pick. It's a very interesting move, as we know Chris Paul has starting experience, but that's likely going to shift to a reverse role for the Warriors and Mike Dunleavy Jr. is their, first, their new GM's first big move. You know, Paul's on expiring contract while Golden State moves Pool on a big contract, freeing up money to try and work out a new deal for Draymond Green. Chris Paul's probably going to come off the bench more than likely. You know, I don't really think there's enough room. I, I just don't think putting, you know, you either put Steph Curry at shooting guard, which, you know, I don't agree with, or you put Klay Thompson at small forward, which I also don't agree with. But I, I just think that he, Chris Paul is probably going to take a backseat and a bench role at this point. Uh, Wizards, you know, they nabbed Jordan Poole probably at his lowest value. He had an incredible 2022 playoff, but he struggled in the 2022-23 season. In the playoffs especially, he averaged 10.3 points per game on 34% shooting. Alongside Tyus Jones, he could become the number one scorer for Washington if Kyle Kuzma were to leave the free agency because he he did opt out of his contract, he will be an unrestricted free agent. However, excuse me. However, you know, Poole, this is... Excuse me. I find this to be a very good deal for the Washington Wizards because, again, they're getting Jordan Poole on his lowest value possible, so it's a very high-risk, high-reward type, um, type of deal where, you know, you know what Jordan Poole is capable of, but, you know, can he be consistent with it? You know, he, he is a lackluster defender, but he will be, you know, the, the guy who will be at, you know, if, if Kuzma were to go, he'll be the guy that, you know, you're going to ask to, you know, score and be the top, um, be the top, you know, playmate. Well, you're going to ask Tyus Jones to be the top playmaker, but you're asking Jordan Poole to be the point scorer, you know. I think it's a good deal for Washington in the case because, like, I, like, Poole's value is so low at this point, considering everything that happened to in Golden State prior to the season with him getting punched by Draymond Green. And then his performance, it felt like his performance was kind of shaken by that very moment because he didn't look like his same self in 2023 compared to 2022. I think a, new, I think a change of scenery can really help out Jordan Poole. And, you know, if if Washington gives him the green light to be the top scorer on that team, we could see a really efficient and much better version of Jordan Poole. But time will tell. Excuse me. Need, need that water. So, moving on. The NBA draft took place just a few days ago, and I'm here with the biggest, excuse me, the biggest picks of the 2023 NBA draft. And by biggest, I mean which ones I like the most. So, obviously, at number one of the San Antonio Spurs selecting sensation Victor Wembanyama. As we know, he's the biggest prospect in basketball since LeBron James. Anytime you get a player that moves like Kevin Durant offensively, 7'4", 220 pounds, and has the defensive upside of a Kevin Garnett, you got something special. Wemby should fit right into the Spurs system. His shot creation poses him as the top scoring option for San Antonio, and his defensive skills should surely help with a team that ranked dead last in the NBA in such category. He should fit well alongside Jeremy Scohan, both unselfish players and great frontcourt defenders. They have a knack for finding generational big men with the first pick, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, and with their hype, with the hype he's been garnering, like I feel like Wemby can follow in those two footsteps 
but in a different way because you know obviously he i think he's a much more you know i think he has a, a bigger offensive bag than both of those players because you know any like he could play in the post just like you know robinson and duncan did but you know this guy's out here hitting one-legged threes fading away from the basket like it's just he's an absolute freak of nature in every which way an incredible scorer a great defender you know people are gonna say strength is an issue but i believe that you know with how good of a coach greg popovich is i do believe that he's gonna find a way to use that slim frame to uh wemby's advantage to help him against those bigger stronger players such as Jokic and uh, Jokic is pretty strong Uh, but guys like you know Jokic and Bede and Giannis uh as for the Charlotte Hornets with like the Brandon Miller pick I did I do want to say this like very quickly Uh, see it, it when you're in the NBA draft and you have the number two pick I truly believe that you have to pick you know best player you want the you want a star on your team, and, and with Brandon Miller, like he could certainly be, be a star, but he's more of a fit pick than anything. Could he turn into an incredible player for sure? But when you pass up on Scoot Henderson, it's like, and people are like, well, you know, you're just having two ball dominant guards, you know, if Lamelo and Scoot. But here's the thing: it's like, you know, outside of um, you know Lamelo, like who else on that team is worthy of like you know being uh, you know, productive uh, other guard on that team. Terry Rozier? I think Terry Rozier is underrated, but, like, come on. I feel like something new was in change for the Shadow Hornets. I think Scoot Henderson was the right pick. But, hey, if Brandon Miller works out, you know, uh, we'll, we'll shut up. But speaking of Scoot Henderson, I really like the Blazers picking him up at number three. Charlotte being greedy, Charlotte being greedy for fit opened the door for the Blazers to try and maximize their championship window with Dame by drafting arguably the best player besides Wembenyama. Scoot's biggest issue has been his defense, and it will be up to him to use his size, that long frame, and athleticism to improve defensively. But his offensive game shouldn't be questioned. Even in the backcourt with Lillard and Anthony Simons, you know, his athleticism is his most praised attribute. He's showcased many times with open court explosiveness and ability to go from 0 to 100 in the half court. If he is as advertised, is now to see, you know, if Damian Lillard is going to remain in Portland or if the Blazers go full rebuild with Scoot and Simons. Moving on, Houston Rockets, they had two picks in the first round, number four and number 20, those being Amen Thompson and Cam Whitmore. A new age on the horizon for Houston with new coach Amy Odoka, and his presence is felt with the Amen Thomas sele- Thompson selection. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Amen's athleticism is up there with Scoots, and it helps that he is a great distributor that can help with young talents like Jalen Green and Alfred Shingoon. He's great at transition due to his size, speed, and explosiveness, but his half-court effectiveness leaves question marks due to his need to work on the jumper. While the pick is risk-reward, the Rockets are in a spot where they can take those risks with possible postseason aspirations. That That is if everything clicks correctly. Their later-round pick was just as good, if not better, than the number four pick. Many saw Villanova's Cam Whitmore as a top-five level prospect, but he ends up falling to number 20 to Houston. Medicals were a big red flag for teams with Cam Whitmore. But again, the Rockets are in a spot where they can take those risks. He's 6'7", 235. He's not only talented at finishing and driving downhill, but he has a great jumper, which poses great for shot-making in the long run. He has those same issues with most young guys today subpar passing decision making and reliable shooting 
Uh, but Whitmore is only 18, and he has nothing but time and a great coach to help him show up his deficiencies. Really like the Houston Rockets first round um, in this draft. Moving on to the Mavericks. The Mavericks actually had a trade from number 10 to number 12. They they originally selected Kaysan Wallace, a guard from Kentucky, but he was tra- his draft rights were traded to the Oklahoma City Thunder in exchange for center Derek Lively, the second from Duke. The Mavericks' biggest issue, as it seems to always be, is the lack of a true rim protector. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Christian Wood certainly isn't going to cut it. However, the Mavs were able to trade back with the Thunder, who were looking to move up and give away the big contract in Davis Bertans. The Thunder would end up taking Derek Lively in second, and while he's still a raw prospect, Excuse me, jeez. Man, I'm, I'm getting tired. He made great strides at Duke and showed constant signs of improvement. Seven foot two, already making him a great defensive presence at the rim. And he has good enough mobility to make switches on defense. He's going to be asked to be, you know, be a true rim protector, but he could also run the floor and finish at the rim. I kind of, people question this pick, but, you know, considering what the Mavericks could be, he could be a, you know, bench level rim protector for the Mavericks, you know. And potentially develop into a starting level defensive anchor for the Mavs, which they really need in this case. Most people questioned it, but I liked it. And moving on to the Utah Jazz, I felt like they had a really fantastic first round. They had three first round picks, 9, 16, and 28, when they selected Taylor Hendricks, Keontae George, and Bryce Sensabaugh. The Jazz are in an incredible position right now. Like they navigated the how they navigated the Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell trades. They got a collection of draft picks, tons of cap space, and two new stars in Larry Markkinen and Walker Kessler. Despite a solid season under Will Hardy, they still miss the playoffs and have to fill out their roster considerably with scorers, playmakers, and shooters. It started first with a crying great defender, finisher, and shooter in UCF's Taylor Hendricks. Great size at six foot nine, showed promise as a shooter by converting 39% of three-pointers in college. Knows his limitations, and at just 19 years old and 214 pounds, he has a time to polish his game and fill out his frame. The sky is the limit with his defensive skills, shooting ability, rim protection, tough play. He's a really good pick for this team. They followed it up by taking Baylor guard Keontae George, who's a great scorer, shot creator for how young he is. However, due to his subpar defense, if he can't flush that out, he won't be a starter, but he can certainly be a great scoring option off the bench. And then Utah would round out the first would round out the first round by selecting Ohio State's Bryce Sensabaugh, which is a high risk, high reward selection at the end of the first. Sensabaugh has a history of knee injuries dating back to high school, and that's exactly what ended his season at OSU this past year. You know, but he is a great scorer with a smooth jumper and above average shot creation. But like Keontae George, he struggles as a defender. It's much more of a far cry for Sensabaugh to remain with the Jazz than it was with George due to the former's injury history. But if he could stay healthy and you know produce at a solid offensive level, he could be a mainstay off the bench. You know the Jazz to see you know how, again how they navigated the Rudy Gobert and um, oh god I forgot how they navigated the Rudy Gobert and the Donovan Mitchell trades. You know were incredible. They got a ton of great talent from both trades. You know Kessler and Markkanen. They also got really. They also got, um, you know, a lot of draft picks and also freed up a ton of cap space that they could use in the offseason to sign guys if they so choose. And, you know, Will Hardy being a very underrated coach as it is. I feel I really like the Hendricks and George picks. I think those were really good. I think Taylor Hendricks can make 
uh, an immediate impact because of how you know well-rounded he is for today's game. He's tall. He's got a good frame. He can shoot the ball well. He could be a really nice three and D player. Keontae George, you know, he's more of an overall scorer, so he's probably going to be forced into a bench role rather than being the starting point guard of that team. But regardless, they needed scoring. You know, people that are able to you know shot create and you know to score in general and they got that in Keontae George at number 16 where he was projected to go like 15 so he was around to go he was around to go that range but still really really good draft from the Utah Jazz as a whole and moving on to excuse me <laughs> uh sorry uh moving on to the final uh headline I want to talk about before I go into my rankings and I'll explain what it is is the surprising rise of the Cincinnati Reds. Cincinnati coming off a horrible 62-win season in 2022. Little to no hope in the future. Many people were calling for the team to be sold and attendance tanked. The Reds entered June 2023 with a record of 26-29. and 29. While they showed promise early in the season, hopes immediately died down after losing four straight games to start June. Then, on June 6th, top Reds prospect and one of the most hyped MLB prospects today, Shortstop Ellie De La Cruz made his debut against the Los Angeles Dodgers. He would notch his first major league hit, a double, in his second ever AB. The following game, De La Cruz hit his first big league home run against Noah Syndergaard. Once he came up, it felt like the tides were shifting due to him. The Reds would lose back-to-back -back games to the Dodgers and Cardinals, but since that loss, but once since that loss to the St. Louis Cardinals on June 9th, Cincinnati hadn't lost a game until yesterday. They started a win streak against the Cardinals with an 8-4 win, and the Reds will go on to sweep series against the Royals, Rockets, Rockies, and defending World Series champs Astros. All and they def and they swept that series on the road. Their win streak culminated in a big matchup versus the NL leading Atlanta Braves, led by MVP candidate Ronald Acuna Jr. and slugging first baseman Matt Olson, backed up by many solid bats and a strong pitching staff. But the Reds were ready for it. After going down, they went down 5 nothing in the first, but stormed back to take an 11-7 lead in the sixth. The Braves were slowly cutting the gap in the eighth with three home runs off Lucas Sims by Acuna, Austin Riley, and Olsen. Big-time closer Alexis Diaz came in up one to close out the game for the Reds, and with a man on first following a walk, Diaz would force an Orlando Arcia ground ball and turn a 6-4-3 double play, giving the Reds their 12th win in a row. Star of that gutty win was Ellie De La Cruz, who in his just his 15th Major League game hit for the cycle and knocked in four RBIs in a career-defining performance. Longtime Red Joey Votto came up huge as well. He hit two home runs, including a three-run bomb that puts Sadie up for good. Again, they did come up short in pursuit of a 13th straight win as they lost to Atlanta 7-6 yesterday. But going toe-to-toe -to -toe with probably the most well-rounded team in MLB and their subsequent 12-0 run, Shows just what these young Reds are capable of. So, you know, I, I meant, and I say it a lot. Like, you know, a lot of people don't really understand baseball. You know, and you probably listen to this right now. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, this team is super impressive. You know, how are they this good? Well, it's just one word. Youth. Their youth is absolutely flourishing right now. The return of veteran Jody Votto, it seems like all buttons are clicking at the right time. Spencer Steer had in Joey Votto's absence was in, was really really good. Jonathan India has been solid as well as a former NL Rookie of the Year. Matt McClain came up because of shortstop issues. Um, 
you know, with the Reds. They were originally going to call up De La Cruz, but De La Cruz was dealing with an injury. However, McLean was called up first, and McLean has been really solid, and he right now has manned the shortstop position while Ellie moved to third base. But still, McLean has been really solid. Jake Fraley, who they acquired in the Luis Castillo trade, that also acquired them to LV Marte, who I'll get to him. But Jake Fraley has been really good as a starting outfielder, as has TJ Friedel, and the aforementioned Ellie De La Cruz, who has been an absolute stud. The most electrifying man in sports entertainment. And like, shout out to The Rock. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dwayne, but you got a new contender for the most electrifying man. Ellie De La Cruz is an absolute star. With his incredible, you know, he's a switch hitter with, you know, zero. Like his, according to Baseball Savant, right? You know, Baseball Savant is this website that basically tracks, like, average, um, you know, where MLB players rank in certain categories. So, like, they'll rank them in terms of average exit velocity, so like how hard they hit the ball, or sprint speed, like how fast they run. When it comes to Ellie De La Cruz, he ranks in the 98th percentile of average exit velocity, meaning he hits the ball really hard, really, really hard, and he ranks in the 100th percentile in terms of sprint speed, so he's incredibly fast to, to boot. You know, that kid, he is electrifying. He is the future of the Cincinnati Reds, and he definitely showed it in that cycle performance. Their pitching is definitely going to need work in the future, but with a slew of young starters such as Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, he has struggled, but however, Nick Lodolo, Brandon Williamson, and Andrew Abbott, their starter rotation could turn into one of the most consistent in the near future. Their bullpen has also turned into one of the most formidable in the majors, led by budding closer Alexis Diaz. This isn't even taking into account most of the other top prospects, such as Christian Encarnacion Strand. He's been slugging in the minors to a tune of a 648 slugging percentage with 17 home runs and 49 RBIs. He would likely get the call up right now, but you know, with Tyler Stevenson DHing and Joey Votto and Dale Cruz at third, like he doesn't really have a spot. I do believe he will be called up very soon, though. I think he does take a DH spot. And it's not. This isn't even taking into account more prospects. Noel V. Marte, Edwin Arroyo, Camp Collier, Chase Petty. Like, they have so much young talent in that farm system. It's absolutely nuts how good this team could be. And, and you know, they're capitalizing right now in a very weak NL Central. You know, the Cubs have been on fire. The Brewers and Pirates have been kind of, like, you know, tootling. Um, the Cardinals haven't really been – the Cardinals haven't been good – in any case, they have been very disappointing. Now the Reds are taking, you know, advantage of that, and they have been absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal this month. And I can only see it going up from here. You know, it, they could possibly win the NL Central, and if they're young guys, you know, if they're young guys, um, like play as expected. You know, th this team could be contending for a World Series soon enough. And moving on to the final. If I said that was the final headline, um, if I said that was the final headline about um, the, oh God, what was it? About, uh, before the rankings, I apologize, I was wrong. So a bunch of big UFC fights were announced for later in the year. Two, at UFC 292 in Boston in August, a bunch of big fights were announced. Two bantamweight bangers as number seven Rob Font will take on number eight Song Yedong. Uh, Ram Font's coming off a knockout win over Adrian Yanez. 
uh, I forget who uh, Song Yudong. He fought recently, but I forget who he fought. I apologize. And and along with that, number three, Henry Cejudo taking on number six, Chito Vera. Henry is coming off that very narrow loss to Aljamain Sterling at UFC 288, while Chito Vera is coming off a loss himself to Corey Sanhagen, who we'll get to. Those two fights should be absolutely incredible. And that should, and along with um, along with Aljamain Sterling taking on Sean O'Malley, defending his bantamweight championship against the uh, 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 defending his bantamweight championship against Sugar Sean, like that card just shows how freaking talented that bantamweight division is just full with a bunch of killers and it gets even crazier as ufc nashville the um it will be headlined by two bantamweights those being in the aforementioned Corey sanhagen coming off that win against uh chito vera and the number 11th ranked undefeated prospect from dagestan umar namagomedov that should be an absolute banger. Many people questioned why Corey even took that fight, uh, but he came out and said, one, Umar is savage, and number two, I want to test myself. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say what he said, but he, you know, he, he said what he said, but it should be a very good fight. Moving on to UFC Singapore, it should be a very interesting, very fun card, as number two, Max Holloway, will be taking on the Korean zombie, Chan Sung Jung, in the main event, while... Well, that one, the co-made event, is, excuse me, is, um, f well, well, the, the co-made event pre, uh, well, the co-made event preludes the uh, main event. I, I'm, got, I'm getting all mixed up, but regardless, a very good light heavyweight matchup between number seven, Anthony Smith, and number 11, Ryan, Sp Ryan Span, a rematch from when Ryan, when Ryan was finished by Anthony Lionheart Smith via submission back in 2021, I believe. That should be a really good card, and the um, and the uh, new fights were announced in UFC Paris. the The UFC is returning to Paris after a really successful um, bout, I believe, in 2022. As number one heavyweight Cyril Gon will be taken on the eighth ranked Sergey Spivak, while they are while they are preluded by in the Komen event. By the second-ranked uh, women's women's flyweight Manon Fierro versus the number two women's strawweight Rose Namajunas. Rose is making her return to the ring after losing her after losing her strawweight championship, and you've got Cyril Gon coming off of his loss uh, to John Jones recently. So that should be a really fun card as well. And now I have my rankings. Uh, so. So basically, I'm going to. So I'll explain this to you guys. Um, I'm going to bring you guys rankings from the top 15, uh, my top 15 players in each conference, like prior to the college football season. So I'm starting with the ACC in this episode, and I'll be doing the Big 12. Uh, the SEC, ACC, well, I'm doing the ACC, Big 12, Big 10, Pac-12, and SEC. I, I will not be doing the group of five. I will be group, I will be pulling, I will be pulling all the group of five teams into one along with the independents. So Notre Dame will be in there as well, for example. But I'm going to start this with the top 15 ACC players for me in, in the 2023 season. So, I want to start with some honorable mentions. Louisville offensive lineman Brian Hudson, 
he a lot of these stats are gonna come from PFF so shout out to PFF they're awesome Hudson accumulated a 76.9 grade with run and pass blocking grades over 75 in 2022 he was the second highest graded center behind NC State's Grant Gibson in the ACC along with allowing only 14 pressures all season in over 900 offensive snaps Florida State's Johnny Wilson, uh, the wide receiver, he was he was electric last season. He caught 43 passes for 897 yards and five touchdowns, including a 202-yard performance against Oklahoma in their bowl game. He averaged 20.9 yards per catch, which was second in all of Division One FBS. The only reason he's not on, you know, my the top 15 is because like he wasn't really consistent. While he did have an incredible game against Louisville, where he caught seven passes, two of them for touchdowns, and again the aforementioned 200 yard performance against Oklahoma, <clears throat> he, he like the, those were you know incredible performances as it is, but he wasn't consistent with it. I think if he was more consistent, I would certainly put him in here. But still, he is for sure worth mentioning. He's an incredible talent. Wake Forest defensive lineman Jasheen Davis is one of the more underrated players in the ACC. He accumulated a 74.9 grade, which ranked 12th among edge rushers in the ACC. He not, he is in three seasons as a Demon Deacon. He's not 70 tackles, 22 and a half for loss, 12 and a half sacks, and two forced fumbles. He is a very underrated player in this conference. Uh, staying with the defensive line is Clemson's Tyler Davis. After two injury-riddled seasons in 2020 and 2021, Davis recaptured the match he found as a freshman and notched 31 tackles, 9.5 for loss, and 5.5 sacks in 2022. He had an 82.9 overall grade, including an 82.4 run defense grade, which ranked second among ACC interior defenders. Florida, State, uh, Florida State's quarterback transfers Fentrell Cypress to second. He was ranked as the number one overall quarterback in 2022 while playing at Virginia with an 87.8 overall grade and an 87.6 coverage grade. Notch 31 tackles and 14 passes defended for the Cavaliers last season. He was a really big, he was a really sought after prospect in the uh, transfer portal. And with, with Florida State's incredible season and how their transfer portal has gone this season, you know, adding Cypress was a big get for this team. I, I, I would certainly put him on here, but there's just so many talented guys in the ACC. You know, and how many talented guys there are in the ACC, it's also really hard to do this for the Big Ten, which you guys will see later. But regardless, final honorable mention I want to make is, is North Carolina State quarterback Aiden White. He had two last lackluster seasons from 2020 to 2021. That gave way to an elite 2022 as he made 46 tackles, four for loss, four picks, and nine pass deflections. He was the fifth-ranked cornerback in the ACC with a 78.9.7 overall grade. Excuse me. Moving on to the uh, top 15 now. Starting at number 15, I have North Carolina linebacker Cedric Gray. Many people saw his potential in his sophomore season as he was one tackle shy of 100, but there were many areas in his game that he struggled in. It definitely looked like he fixed those in 2022 as he was one of the best linebackers, not just in the ACC, but in the nation. He made 145 tackles, 12 of them for loss, a sack, two picks, six pass deflections, three forced fumbles, and two fumble recoveries. To put it simply, he was the heart of the Tar Heels defensively and a major reason why they won the Coast last season. Not only is he an exceptional leader, he's one of the best sideline-to-sideline players in the country, constantly in the mix to make a play. 
I remember when I was watching the ACC championship game get between Clemson and UNC, and it seemed like no matter where the no matter where the ball went, Gray was always in the mix to get there. UNC having brought in many key defensive transfers such as Elijah Huzzy and Antavius Lane, and they have other returning starters, starters such as Power Eccles, Kaiman Rucker, Kevin Hester Jr., and DeAndre Boykins. Gray is, a leading, is leading an experienced defensive group along with a monster offense that could help UNC repeat as divisional champions. Moving to number 14, I have Virginia Tech wide receiver Ali Jennings III. He had a lackluster start to his career at West Virginia. Then he transferred to Old Dominion in 2021 and made an immediate splash. In two years at Norfolk, Jennings caught 116 passes for 2,025 yards and 14 touchdowns with an average over those two years of 17.5 yards per reception. Jennings accumulated an 81.8 overall grade, which is good enough for fifth of all Sun Belt receivers in 2022. He made first team all Sun Belt that same season, and he will be the main receiver alongside two other transfers, those being Norfolk State's Taquan Fenton and Middle Tennessee's Jalen Lane for the Hokies. He'll also get to play with one or one of two solid quarterbacks, either last year's starter Grant Wells or Baylor transfer Kyron Drones. Number 13, I have Florida State running back Trey Benson. The Knowles last year split carries up between Benson, Treshawn Ward, and Lawrence Toafuli. Benson showed out the most, despite only having 154 carries. He was 10 yards short of the 1,000-yard mark and set the PFF record for forced missed tackle rate at 51%. His 79 forced missed tackles ranked third in FBS behind Bijan Robinson and Chase Brown, both of those guys having over 100 more carries than Benson. And with Treshawn Ward transferring to Kansas State, expect the former Oregon Duck, Trey Benson, to show out for an FSU team that's ready to make a splash. Moving to number 12, I have Boston College edge rusher Donovan Esiraku. Yes, the Boston College Eagles, they've never been a massive threat in the ACC, but they've always seemed to have top-tier players. Matt Ryan, Luke Keekley, A.J. Dillon, and now case in point, Donovan, Donovan Esiraku. The junior led the ACC in sacks last season with 8.5 to go along with 61 tackles, 14.5 for loss, and 3 forced fumbles. Zyraku ranked 5th in player grades among ACC edge rushers, behind names such as Yasir Abdullah and KJ Henry. Many of the Boston College's stalwarts on the defensive line have left, which leaves him as the low defensive lineman to carry the load for the Eagles. While he has shown his ability as a pass rusher, as with his ACC leading 8.5 sacks, Excuse me. There is an argument that Ezraku is a better run defender, as his 84.2 run defense grade ranked only behind Miami's Akeem Mesidor in the ACC among edge rushers. Moving up to number 11, I have Duke defensive lineman Dwayne Carter. Uh, with the Blue Devils, they had a very resurgent season under head coach Mike Elko, and many could argue for other players on the squad, such as quarterback Riley Leonard and wide receiver Jalen Calhoun. However, defensive lineman Dwayne Carter is making his name as a top defender in the ACC. Carter made 36 tackles, 11 for loss, 5.5 sacks, 4 pass deflections, 3 forced fumbles, and 3 fumble recoveries. Completely filled up the stat sheet for the Duke defense. Also an insanely balanced as he had an 81.9 pass rush grade and 74.7 run defense grade. Good enough for an elite 86.3 overall grade. He's shown great promise for a Duke team on the rise. Next year, the Blue Devils will be looking to make some noise in a revamped ACC. Moving into the top 10, I have Miami defensive lineman Leonard Taylor. Despite only appearing in only 329 defensive snaps, Taylor proved that he could be a force for the Hurricanes. 
He accumulated 24 tackles, 10 and a half for loss, and three sacks in 2022. He also accumulated a 19.5% pass rush pass rush win rate and 16.2% pressure rate, both of which trailed only Pitts, Kalijah, Kansi in D1 FBS. Uh, Taylor notched a 85.5 PFF pass rush grade, which ranked 14th among all interior defenders, giving him an elite 87.3 overall grade. He's a four, he was a force despite a low snap count, so just imagine how much better he could be with more snaps. Others have been keying in on the former top 10 recruit as he's projected as a first-round pick by many analysts in the 2024 NFL Draft. So expect Leonard Taylor to be a big name to look out for this coming season in the ACC. Sorry. Excuse me, excuse me. I need the water. Uh, moving up to number nine, I have Syracuse tight end Aronde Gadsden the second. Truly one of the more underrated players, not just in the ACC, but in college football too. He's the son of a former NFL wide receiver. Gadsden the second has the frame and production that puts him at the top of this list. Well, not the top, but definitely middle of the pack. Gotta show respect to this guy. He's caught 61, pa- last year he caught 61 passes for 969 yards and six touchdowns. Gadsden played most of the snaps, not as a traditional tight end that plays both receiver and in line, but he played the majority of the snaps either at slot or out wide. He showed how well he played at receiver as a receiver as he accumulated an 82.7 receiving grade via PFF, which was the third highest in the ACC in 2022. The two above him were A.T. Perry and Josh Downs, both of whom were selected in the most recent NFL draft. While Syracuse isn't expected to have the most incredible of seasons, I expect Gadsden II to show the nation that he's capable of being a top-level receiver, and Garrett Schrader returning to the Orange after a great 2022 should only help Gadsden's performance in 2023. Moving to number 8, I have Clemson linebacker Barrett Carter. He can make an argument that he's just as good as his perennial All-American teammate, who I'll get to. Carter was the second half of one of the best linebacker groups in college football, accumulating 73 tackles, 10.5 for loss, 5.5 sacks, 2 picks, 8 passes defended, and 2 forced fumbles. He was a monster in every sense of the word and played all over the place for the Tigers in the box as a slot corner and on the defensive line. He now has a 78.8 run defense grade, 77.4 coverage grade, and despite only playing 113 D-line snaps, accumulated an 82.4 pass rush grade. Carter's a force wherever you put him on the defense, so expect him to be one of the leading forces on a monster Clemson defense. <coughs> Man. This is tired. But almost done. Alright. So moving up to number seven, I have another Clemson player, that being running back Will Shipley. Shipley was the heart and soul of the Clemson offense in 2022, in a year where quarterback DJ Uyagale was very inconsistent. With young phenom K. Klubnik set to step in as a start in 2023, I still trust in Shipley to be the biggest offensive contributor for the Tigers. He played in all 14 games for Clemson, rushing 210 times for 1,182 yards and 15 touchdowns. Shipley is backed by a solid offensive line, one of the better run-blocking lines in the ACC that returns four starters and adds a highly touted prospect in Tristan Lay at tackle. New offensive coordinator Garrett Riley, who led the electric offense for last year's national runner-up TCU, he's set to bring a much more sophisticated offense than last year's squad, which will not only benefit Klubnik, but Shipley as well. If you saw anything last season from TCU's run game, led by NFL draft pick Kendra Miller, we know that Riley, Riley brings a balanced, offensive, explosive offense that can utilize Shipley's physicality, athleticism, and versatility as a receiver to turn him into a monster running back. 
And moving up to number six, the final Clemson player on this list, linebacker Jeremiah Trotter Jr. I alluded to him as a perennial All-American because everything shows that he can truly be a a top tier linebacker son of former pro bowler jeremiah trotter he junior has established himself as one of the best linebackers in the country on one of the most ferocious defenses he's a jack of all trades as he was solid against the run excellent as a pass rusher and elite in coverage trotter jr finished the season with 89 tackles 13 and a half for a loss two six and a half sacks two interceptions and five passes defended in his final three games of the season against South Carolina, North Carolina, and Tennessee, he accumulated 26 tackles, seven and a half tackles for loss, five sacks, and a pick six. Um, you know, while he did struggle against the Vols and have lost for Clemson, I have no issue that Trotter Jr. will make a big impact and will be the key player and leader for Clemson this coming season as they try to win back-to-back -back ACC championships in a loaded year for the conference. Moving to the top five, at number five, I have Miami safety Cameron Kitchens. Last year was not at all the season to be expected from first-year coach Mario Cristobal as the Hurricanes went five and seven with multiple poor performances. However, not all was bleak in Miami, such as the case with safety Cameron Kitchens, who established himself as one of the best safeties in the nation, much less the ACC. Kitchens finished 2022 with 59 tackles, 6 picks, 6 passes defended, and a forced fumble. He notched a 90.7 coverage rate via PFF, which ranked first among all safeties in 2022. Kitchens was also a solid run defender while he played most of his snaps at free safety. He also played a lot of snaps in the box and at slot, which culminated in a 71.3 run defense grade. Miami is hoping to bounce back next season, and with multiple transfers coming in on both sides of the ball, Kitchens is expected to be one of the leaders of the Miami defense looking to rebound from last year's disappointment. Moving up to number four, I have Florida State edge rusher Jared Verse. If one were to look for the definition of consistency, Jared Verse would be in the mix of that definition. Verse has recorded a PFF grade over 81 in each of his first three seasons. He started his career playing for the Albany Great Danes until transferring to Florida State, where he notched 48 tackles, 17 for a loss, and 9 sacks in 2022. Verse could have easily declared for the NFL draft, but chose to return for one more year at Florida State in pursuit of a national title. Verse was consistently productive in every game, including notching three sacks in his first two games as a null against Duquesne and LSU. He showed that he's able to show out in big games as he sacked Jaden Daniels, Daniels twice in a victory over LSU and notched seven tackles, two and a half for loss, and one and a half sacks against Oklahoma. There's a reason that Verse was regarded as a top prospect in the 2023 NFL Draft, and he will bring back his pedigree to an FSU team ready to compete in 2023. Moving to the top three, at number three, I have Duke offensive tackle Graham Barton, who is part of a resurgent Duke squad and established himself as one of the best tackles in the nation. Posted an, he posted an 85-plus PFF grade in both run and pass blocking, so he was incredibly elite on both sides of the ball. Could have declared for the 2023 draft, but with a great season where he improves his limiting pressures, he could be a possible first-round pick in 2024. He only allowed two sacks last season, all season, 10 pressures, and no quarterback hits in his nearly 900 offensive snaps in 2022. He ranks 7th of 541 tackles in run blocking grade and 12th of 575 tackles in pass blocking, good enough for an overall grade of an elite 88.2. And moving on to number two, I have Florida State quarterback Jordan Travis. 
another top tier quarterback on par with that of the number one guy on this list and USC quarterback Caleb Williams. In a resurging year for the Seminoles under Mike Norvell, Jordan Travis showed out and proved that he could be a top tier college quarterback. He completed 64% of passes, threw for 3, over 3,200 yards with 24 touchdowns to five interceptions. He also made an impact on the ground with 5.1 yards per carry and seven touchdowns despite a stacked backfield. Travis was slight, was straight consistent all season long and capped it off with a monster game against Oklahoma in the Cheesehead Bowl with a 92.4 game grade. Travis also got a massive overhaul through the transfer portal. Johnny Wilson returns as a scary speed deep threat with fantastic frame alongside Michigan State transfer Keon Coleman. FSU is, no, is also known for running two tight end sets and coming in is South Carolina transfer Jaheim Bell and shorter transfer, shorter university being a small school, Kyle Morlock. And he's also going to get a, v, a revamped offensive line as they have two transfers in Jeremiah Byers and Casey Roddick, along with returning production such as Robert Scott. All the pieces are in place for not only FSU to make a run at the playoffs, but for Travis to show out as a potential Heisman candidate. And I alluded to him when I was talking about Travis, the number one player in the ACC going into 2023, North Carolina quarterback Drake May. There's a reason why he's up there to challenge Caleb Williams as a Heisman candidate. The sophomore threw for over 4,000 yards and 38 touchdowns to seven interceptions. He notched 11 uh, in 14 games played. He notched 11 of those games. He had he had a grade over 74. To put that in perspective, I should have mentioned this earlier. An uh, an average grade in PFF is around a 60. So this so these grades were were very were very above average. And he had five of those performances with he had a PFF grade over 85. So elite performances. He was incredibly efficient in the medium throwing range as he threw for 1,279 yards and 13 touchdowns to no picks with a 92 passing grade. However, he showed that he's able to throw the ball downfield effectively, notching at a monster 97.5 grade with 1,331 yards, 15 touchdowns to four picks on passes of 20 plus yards downfield. May was also a great runner, notching a 74.8 PFF run grade as he rushed for 698 yards, which led his team, and seven touchdowns. While May lost top receiver Josh Downs to the NFL Draft, he has a slew of targets as a receiver with incoming transfers Devontae Walker. At Kent State last season, he caught 58 passes for 921 yards and 11 touchdowns. Georgia Tech transferred Nate McCollum, who caught 60 passes for 655 yards and three touchdowns. Alongside returning receiver J.J. Jones, who with twenty, who on just twenty-four receptions, uh, notched an eighteen-point-one yard per reception average, and one of the better tight ends in the country in Bryson Nesbitt. I have no doubt that May is easily the top player in his conference and should be a standout to challenge Caleb Williams for Heisman and even number one pick in twenty twenty-four. And yeah, that's going to be the end of the episode. That was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. But regardless, this was a really fun episode to make. I really enjoyed it. Um, I want to thank you guys all for listening. If you made it this far, shout out to you guys. And yeah, that's going to be all for today. I will see you guys in the near future. Everyone have a blessed day. And I'll see you all soon again. See you.